Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of alt-rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week, now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. It had taken a few years, but by the middle 1980s, the underground music scene in North America had reached some kind of a tipping point. Enough people had discovered punk, new wave, and all the subgenres associated with both so that things started to become really interesting. Campus radio stations began to have more clout. The more support they gave to these non-mainstream bands, the more they were appreciated and the more power they wielded. And as these stations began to communicate with each other through publications and charts and conventions, their influence and reach grew even more. Turns out that a surprising number of people were actually really tired of whatever the mainstream rock industry was pumping out. And each day, the alternative scene, that's what we were calling it by the mid-80s, attracted more fans who were only too happy to evangelize the epiphanies that had led to their conversion. Yes, college radio helped. So did all the bands willing to tour alt-friendly clubs. And so did independent record stores, which set themselves apart from the big chains by stocking more of the weird stuff. But... We can't forget the role of MTV and any channel or any show that played videos from all those weird new telegenic bands from the UK. Now, if you spent any time at all watching music videos in the middle 80s, it was obvious that as interesting as the growing alt-rock scene was in North America, there was something just as interesting happening on that cold, rainy rock in the North Atlantic. And it was all happening so fast. This is the Complete History of Alt-Rock, Chapter 9. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're now into our ninth episode of our broad survey of the history of what became known as Alt-Rock. Chapter 8 was all about the evolution of indie culture in North America through the 80s. We now need to spend some time examining what happened in the UK. 
Now, we covered a chunk of this stuff back in Chapter 7 with the birth of all the different styles that followed in the wake of punk. There was goth and techno-pop and industrial, modern ska, which were all basically British inventions. These sounds sprung up very quickly, spread very quickly, and often died very quickly. Much of this innovation was made possible by simple geography. See, the British Isles is the only English-speaking territory for thousands of miles in any direction. 60 million people crammed into a very small space. And thus, with most attention turned inward, ideas, trends, and sounds could move very, very fast. If a song or a band or a sound got played on BBC radio and TV, which reaches every corner of the empire, millions of people would be instantly exposed to it. And then there's the matter of the British music press. All these magazines and tabloids, not just coming out monthly, but weekly. Each of them covering the latest and the coolest, and each trying to outdo each other with scoops and discoveries. Now, the role of the British music press is something that most North Americans don't get. That industry has always operated with a different philosophy. Now, you see, Britain didn't get legal, private, commercial radio until the 1970s. This is because Her Majesty's government believed that the responsibilities associated with radio broadcasting were far too important to be left in the hands of private citizens. If you're familiar with the story of the British pirate radio ships, you'll know that even though Britain was exploding with music in the 1960s with the Beatles and the Stones and so on, it was pretty much impossible to hear those British bands on British radio. The BBC would have none of it. And this is where the printed media came in. The NME, Sounds, Melody Maker, and dozens more filled the gap played by radio in North America. See, these publications believed that it was their duty to discover new music, to discover new scenes, build up the bands through hype and exposure, and then abandon them for the next shiny thing. From outside, it sometimes looked malicious. Why build up a band only later to take them out at the knees? I think it was all about competition, the fear that a rival publication would find something cooler faster than you. The end result was a massive churn in sounds and trends. For example, ska was one of the big post-punk sounds thanks to bands like The Specials and The Selector and Madness. They were all championed by the British music press. But then some editor or writer decided that rockabilly was the next big thing and everyone abandoned ska almost overnight. This Now, to be fair, the end of the post-punk ska era wasn't entirely due to the British music media losing interest. The scene had become invaded by racist skinheads who undermined the racial harmony that had been one of the foundations of the ska revival from the beginning. Ska wouldn't die, but it would just lay fallow for a while. Another thing that spurred innovation in British music through the 80s were the dozens and dozens and dozens of independent labels that popped up. They were nimble and quick and able to get music into the stores and bands on the road much faster than a major label. And this is how we're going to tell the story in this episode. The development of British indie culture from the perspective of the record labels that helped make it happen. Let's take the story of Rough Trade, founded by a guy named Jeff Travis. It started when he had this giant record collection that he needed to sell off. He spent a lot of time in Canada and the United States amassing all these records. And to get rid of them, he opened a record shop in London in 1976. And by 1978, that record shop had grown into a record label. Rough Trade was all about finding new and exciting post-punk bands. Honestly, though, most of the acts Travis signed in the early days sold records by the dozen. There was one exception, though. 
was this Manchester band called The Smiths. Now, The Smiths were exactly the opposite of what was happening in British music at the time. They were all about guitars and bass and drums and lyrics, especially lyrics. No synthesizers, solid rhythm section, this guitarist with an amazing sense of songcraft, and the singer. He had charisma and personality to burn, and he was quick with a pithy, outrageous quote. Just the kind of thing that played well in the British music media. So, in amongst forgotten rough trade soundings like The Flying Bricks, Young Marble Giants, and Agitpop, came songs like this. The Smiths, with How Soon Is Now from 1984. Unbelievably, that was originally a throwaway B-side, but it ended up becoming one of the defining alt-rock songs of the 80s on both sides of the Atlantic. Another great British indie label was Factory, which was founded by Tony Wilson, a TV host in Manchester, who decided that someone needed to showcase the music of his city. If you've ever seen the movie 24-Hour Party People, you have a lightly fictionalized account of what happened. And I must stress that the movie is only lightly fictionalized. Factory had been the label of Joy Division. When singer Ian Curtis committed suicide in 1980, the rest of the band regrouped as New Order. That second act in their career turned out to be just as influential as their first. See, New Order created a bridge between dance music and post-punk indie culture. Their Joy Division heritage made their coolness unassailable, unquestionable. Same with their indie credentials. But their worldwide success and the way they changed alt-rock forever was due to an accident of laziness. I love this story. New Order hated doing encores. They just wanted to play the gig, get off stage, and drink. So one day they came up with the idea of just turning on Stephen Morris's drum machine and letting it go while everybody walked off stage as the punters continued to dance. This worked well, and many pints were consumed much more quickly than they otherwise might have been. Then, for a little bit of spice and to keep the audience at least a little interested, they got a sequencer, this new robotic device that could automate keyboards, and had it trigger something on Gillian Gilbert's synthesizers. Okay, this was starting to sound interesting. It was singer Bernard Sumner who came up with the idea of sequencing a line-in from bass player Peter Hook. And suddenly, New Order had the foundations of this new song, and it was being played entirely by machines. Okay, the story is not done. New Order took this idea into the studio one day with the idea of recording something proper. The problem was, they were all loaded up on LSD. They managed to get all the tracks down, but they were so wasted that once their parts were done, the studio engineers were fed up with them and they just go across the street to the cafe, let us finish mixing the song in peace. When the song was done, it was released only as an 8-minute, 12-inch single. It got some play on the radio, but it made its biggest impact in the dance clubs. See, at the time, people were dancing to songs like Physical by Olivia Newton-John and I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett. No one, I mean no one, had ever heard anything like New Order before, and it rocked their world. New Order's Blue Monday, the top-selling 12-inch single in the history of the universe. Three million-plus copies. Yet it lost money. 
You see, Factory invested so much money in the design and printing of the sleeve of this record that they lost 30 pence for every copy they sold. This added up to tens of thousands of pounds, all for releasing the world's best-selling 12-inch single. This highlights a problem with many of those great British indie labels of the 80s. They were crap at doing business. Factory would eventually go bankrupt twice. Two-Tone would sink under the weight of its debt. Rough Trade went bankrupt by 1991, and by then they had arrangements with other indie labels, and they were all hurt as a result. But there were other indie labels who didn't fail. And because they didn't, the bands on their rosters changed the world. More in a moment. Back in Chapter 7 of our Complete History of Alt-Rock, we heard about Daniel Miller, who took the money he made from a surprise hit single of his called Warm Leatherette and founded an independent record company called Mute. Now, Mute was designed to be an all-synthesizer label, and that actually turned out to be a very smart move because after 1981, when keyboard-driven music started making a big impact on the British charts, it was simply a case of being in the right place at the right time. Mute's biggest signing was Depeche Mode. Actually, check that. They never really signed a formal contract with Mute. For years, the relationship honestly existed on nothing more than a handshake. Depeche Mode eventually became the biggest selling band to emerge of the whole techno-pop era in Britain. And today, worldwide sales? Somewhere north of 100 million. Another fascinating British indie label of the 80s was Creation. It was founded by a Scotsman named Alan McGee in 1983. And like Mute and Rough Trade and Factory and Two-Tone, Creation carved out an important niche in the early 80s indie movement. McGee's best early contribution was signing the Jesus and Mary Chain, a Scottish group centered around two brawling, hard-to-deal-with brothers who believed that there was beauty and power in noise and feedback and fuzz. The chain hated that guitar bands had disappeared, so they decided to make the most extreme guitar-based music they could. But the chain could also write songs like this. This is from 1985. The Jesus and Mary Chain with Just Like Honey, the single that established Creation Records as a force in British indie culture in 1985. Oh, and in case you didn't know, Alan McGee would later discover and sign another band to Creation Record that was also centered around a couple of brawling, hard-to-deal-with brothers. They were called Oasis. Despite its successes, Creation did have its money issues like a lot of these other labels, especially after one of McGee's proudest signings, My Bloody Valentine, turned in a record that was so expensive to make that it nearly bankrupted the label. McGee eventually sold to Sony Records, so don't worry about him, he's just fine. Beggar's Banquet provided another key ingredient to the indie record culture in Britain in the 80s. Like just about every other label we've covered, the company's creation was inspired by the DYI attitude of the original punk rock movement. Beggars came together in 1977. But unlike many of the other labels we've mentioned, Beggars never, ever went out of business. They maintained a carefully groomed roster, balancing out the fringy stuff by being just successful enough with a few groups. For every group like The Lurkers, there was a Gary Newman. Making up for the Bolshoi was Bauhaus. And God bless Nico, but thank God for the cult.
The Cults, from their 1985 album Love. They were signed and nurtured by Beggar's Banquet, another piece of the pie when talking about the labels that fostered British indie culture in the 1980s. There's one more label I need to mention, and we'll use them to finish off Chapter 9, start Chapter 10, and even get into with Chapter 11. That's next. Now, for this entire program, we've told the story of the development of British indie culture from the perspective of the independent record labels that signed the bands so the bands could make it happen. And there's one more company I need to mention, 4AD. Now, 4AD was founded in 1977 and is actually related to Beggar's Banquet. They were conceived as the more experimental side, the lab, if you want, for Beggar's. If it flew on 4AD, well, then Beggar's would take it over. That idea lasted for just one band, Goth King's Bauhaus. After that, 4AD followed its own path. Like Factory Records, 4AD worked on creating and maintaining a distinct visual identity. Meanwhile, the company signed artists that were adventurous in their approach to music. One of these groups was called Modern English. Their fifth single for 4AD still provides pretty decent income for those involved. I think you probably know it. Modern English with I Melt With You, giant 1983 hit for the English indie label 4AD. Now, we're not done with 4AD just yet. Like I said, they're going to figure very prominently in both Chapter 10 and 11 in our story. On Chapter 10 of The Complete History of Alt-Rock, we're going to have to get a bit technical. Just as studio technology allowed for huge leaps forward in the sound of rock in the early 1970s, there were certain technological developments that came along in the 80s that also changed everything. And we'll begin Chapter 10 more or less where we're leaving Chapter 9 with 4AD Records. They released a remarkable record that, uh, well, nothing was quite the same afterwards, and I'm not sure they got all the credit they deserve. Sampling, synths, and DJ culture next time with The Complete History of Alt-Rock. Tactical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.